This is Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. There are some really great words in the English language that we don't use anymore. Bedward is a great English word that we don't use. It means I'm going to bed. I'm bedward. Billingsgate is one of my new favorite words. It basically refers to foul language. Billingsgate is, is coarse language. Crapulous. Uh, I don't feel good. Elf lock. Sweet word to, to describe hair tangles. Things like that. There are some really, some really good word. Uh, fudgel. Fudgel is the act of giving the impression that you're working, but you're really not. Which I get accused of a lot. I don't know what the. How would you uh, conjugate that? Fudgling. He's a fudgler. I don't know. It sounds dirty. It sounds Billingsgate-ish. But the point is that there are a lot of good words. I came across one this week uh, in the middle of my studies. I'm back uh, studying the Federalist-Anti-Federalist debate, particularly looking, as I've talked about, towards the Anti-Federalists. And I came across a great word this week in one of their letters. The word was irrefragable. Now, irrefragable is a word that I had never heard before. I think that's a little, I mean, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here. That's a little unusual. It's a word I'd never heard, and I had to go look it up. I love it when I have to, when I'm reading, and I have to stop and go look up a word. That, to me, is is a moment of, I'm learning again. I love reading scientific papers for just that reason. I have to go look up words. I have to go look up concepts. And more often than not, when I do that, it causes me to be distracted because I'll be off in other directions. Oh, that's what this means. I wonder how this applies and and so forth and so on. This word irrefragable literally means not able to be refuted or disproved. So if something is irrefragable, it doesn't mean that it's correct. It simply means that you can't prove it. So for example, conspiracy theories would be irrefragable. Because no amount of proof that you offer is going to change anybody's mind. So the, the world being flat is an irrefragable theory. And when you start looking, when I started looking at in those terms, I really like the word. I mean, not only does it sound impressive, but it's the kind of word that if you use it in a sentence, people are going to think either, oh, that guy's really smart, or they're going to think that guy's really pretentious. And either way, I'm okay with that. You can think either one of me and doesn't bother me. You can also think I'm really stupid for using a big word like irrefragable when I could just say can't be disproven, but I don't do all this work for nothing, right? So back to the, the Federalist Anti-Federalist argument. I wanna I wanna circle back here to something that we've talked about. I don't want to lose sight of this, is I guess what I'm saying. There is a principle at play here in the Federalist-Anti-Federalist debate that we do not want to lose sight of, and that is very simply this. Both sides, Federalist and Anti-Federalist, have the same goal. They want to preserve liberty and prevent tyranny. 
They may disagree about how to do that. They clearly disagree about what's the best way to do that. And they clearly disagree about what history teaches about how to do this. But they have exactly the same goal. It's not like today where you look at what's going on in our leadership today. And I don't think you can say that they have the same goal. And so consequently, the arguments today are much different. Between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, it's a debate over methodology, not goals. Now, this does not mean that they could not be cutting and sarcastic and downright mean to one another, and in fact, create situations where anger boiled over to the point where people were shooting at each other in duels. But it does mean that ultimately, the same goal was at heart. And had either side prevailed, we would have had the same mission to preserve liberty, to prevent tyranny. Now, there is a debate that's going on here in this Federalist, this early part of the Federalist Anti Federalist debate, this October November debate, and it comes over Montesquieu. And Montesquieu's axiom that republics must be small. Now, we talked about this briefly before, maybe not so briefly, but we talked about the fact that republics under Montesquieu's ideas have to be very small because that is how you get accountability of the leaders. It's how you get the virtuous, engaged citizen. Everybody's involved. Everybody has to be involved. If the republic is too big, say 50,000 people or more, you can't really get that engaged, virtuous society. You can't get the, the accountability that you need because no longer do the leaders who are elected understand the individual people, and it's, the individual people can't know their representatives. If it's too big, it's going to fail. So it is, Montesquieu says, axiomatic that to be successful, a republic must be tiny. Axiomatic, by the way, meaning self-evident and unquestionable. So according to Montesquieu, it is unquestionable, axiomatic, that a republic to be successful must be small. Do you believe that? I mean, we have a republic, and by no means is it small. Is it irrefragable and axiomatic that republics must be small? If we consider how different kinds of government works, different kinds of governments work, and we're not going to go through all of them, we're going to talk specifically about democracy here. Democracy has a long three, 4,000 year history, starting with the Athenian democracies uh, of the 500s BCE. The Athenian democracy was a direct democracy. Every franchised voter was not only able to participate, but was expected to participate. And there was a certain spirit amongst the Athenian democracies that made it so that you wanted to participate. You earned that right. And so you weren't going to just give it up. We could spend a lot of time on this. I'm not going to, but it's fascinating history about how the militant, the military element of the Athenian democracies, particularly the hoplites, who were the ordinary citizens who made up the army of the Greek city-states, uh, led to that democracy, led to the, the developments in Athenian democracy. Because if we're going to serve, 
we're going to vote was kind of mentality. And eventually that came to be. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on direct democracy because, again, we don't need to. We are more familiar with the representative democracy idea. It's something we've been familiar with for close to 400 years, I would think. The representative system is an indirective, indirect democracy where the people hold the sovereignty, but it's through their representatives. You know this, not direct participation. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm not telling you anything we haven't said for 20 years here on the Dave Bowman Show. But there are actually two types of indirect or representative Republican democracy. You know what they are? The first is a is a liberal democracy. A liberal democracy, a liberal representative democracy finds itself, finds its core, finds its purpose in the rule of law, protecting liberty, protecting freedom, protecting against tyranny. There is a second type, and we're not going to talk about it today. I want to circle back to this uh, in, a, in a future show because I think this is so fascinating. An illiberal republic, an illiberal democracy in which the representatives of the people don't pay any attention to the people. They don't care what the people think. They don't care what the, all they care about is that the people vote for them once every, I don't know, two, six, four years. We'll come back to that one another day. But even within the representative system, there are various systems. You have an electoral democracy where we vote for the representatives. You have a dominant system where you just have one party and you vote for that party. You have the parliament, parliamentary system, which is familiar to us from England, which is a little bit different than what we're used to because, again, you have a cabinet that is chosen then from the people's representatives, uh, which are chosen from very small boroughs and so forth and so on. And there is something called a presidential republic, a presidential democracy. And this is fascinating to me. And again, we don't have a lot of time to spend on it, uh, spend on it. But if you were putting this in American terms, it would be called a Jacksonian democracy. And this is the idea that the executive acts and the legislative approves. It is extreme executive power derived from the, the will of the people. In other words, the people say to the president, do this. Forget Congress, forget you know the representatives. We don't need them. You do it, and we'll we'll get them in line. That's a fascinating idea, isn't it? And it's something that I think has become more and more common in our country through the years. Now, all of these systems and all of these types are related. They all have advantages and disadvantages, and you can probably see what they are. But the question is, does the Montesquieuan axiom, the republic must be small to be successful, hold true? If you were to think about it, if you were to consider it, if you were to think about the way that we've talked about the constitutional republic that we have for the past 20 years, you would probably conclude that no, Montesquieu was wrong. It doesn't have to be small to be successful. But why would you say that? I mean, what's the reasoning? What, you would probably come to that conclusion, and I think to a degree correctly so, but what's the reasoning behind it? That's the real question, isn't it? Because when you have to think about things, all of a sudden, it's a little different, isn't it? 
after Cato's letter comes out, and we talked about Cato's letter uh, and the response from Caesar, Cato's letter, if you recall, really criticized the size of the proposed government, the size of the proposed republic. And it did so in very Montesquieuian terms. Very much a, an anti-federalist, uh, almost sacred doctrine of anti-federalism is that these republics are too big. And there were some arguments back. Ha Hamilton argued that, well, you'd have to subdivide down to the size of New York City to make this work if that was really the case. But there came, in early November, another letter from a Federalist this time, who signed his letter Americanus. I have no idea why he chose that name. In fact, while we know quite a bit about the man who wrote the letter, he really, he's an ardent Federalist, but beyond that, he's more of a business person. He's far more interested in making money and using the political system to protect his money-making than anything else. His name is John Stevens, and he's actually from New Jersey. But much like today, the dividing line between New York and New Jersey is murky. And I don't just say that because it's the Hudson River. I say that because they are so closely tied politically, economically, socially, that even in those days, it was still the case. And, and so even though this guy is actually from New Jersey, John Stevens, he is heavily involved in New York politics. In fact, when the Stamp Act comes out, he's one of the, the committee of four that New York puts together to oppose the Stamp Act and make sure that it's not put in place. Later on, he will be uh, elected as vice president of New Jersey in 1776, and he will serve as vice president of New Jersey until 1782. It's a great title. Later, he will serve as the president of the ratifying convention for New Jersey. So it's clear that he's very much a Federalist, but he's very upset about Cato's letter in the New York papers. And so he is going to write a letter, which I said he's going to sign it as Americanus. Again, I don't know why he chose that name, but here you go. His objection to Cato is almost based solely in the idea that Montesquieu's irrefragable axiom, his unproven self-evident claim, is patently false. And I think that today, if I were to ask you, you would agree. You would say, no, a republic doesn't have to be small to be successful. And he has some reasons why that maybe you haven't thought of. In general, he believes that all democracies, whether they're Athenian, whether they're Westminsterian, whether they're presidential, whatever they may be, all land and break up over the same issue. Much as confederacies always break up over the inability of the central government to, to command a, an economy or whatever, the same thing happens in a democracy when you have factionalism. Now, what happens in factionalism? Factionalism is areas of interest, whether that be geography, whether that be social, whether it be religion, doesn't matter, factionalize themselves and they begin to well, try to control things based on their factional belief. Oddly enough, were you to go look very closely at uh, Germany, the Weimar Republic, and the breakup of the Weimar Republic, I think you'd see a lot of this, a lot of factionalism that causes this breakup of that democracy. He says, we are naturally inclined 
without the aid of reason and experience. To suppose that in a free government, every man should have a right to a personal vote on every measure. This is the rock on which all, government, all Democrat governments have split. Well, now wait a minute. Don't we say today, one man, one vote? We, we do, but do we mean it? He's talking about Athenian democracy, where we naturally assume that in a democracy, every man has a vote on every issue. And if we assumed that that was true, then Montesquieu would be correct, he says, because Montesquieu tells us that the republics have to be small in order to be uh, successful. And if you get too big, then you're not going to be able to, it's, it, it becomes impractical to do this. Utterly impractical is the words Montesquieu uses. So, reason and experience have shown us then, Americus right, Americanus writes, that the powers of government must be delegated. And then he writes this incredible sentence. I'm going to read it to you because if I just said it to you, you'd go, there's no way anybody would say that. Quote, it was the English who first discovered the secret of which the ancients were totally ignorant of legislation by representation. This is the hinge on which all Republican governments must swing. In other words, Americus's claim, Stevens's claim, is that Montesquieu is wrong if you replace republic with represented. If, if you do away with the assumption that every man has every vote on every issue and delegate the authority of government into selected representatives, however you choose to do that, then you can have a successful republic that could be theoretically infinite in size. But it has to have that. And he doubles down on this in a way because he talks about the fact that, okay, and even if we do this, even if we go to a representative system that the English have taught us and this, this hinge that the Republican government swings upon, even that, he says, isn't going to get rid of the factionalism. It isn't going to completely get rid of that. We're still going to have that problem. But, he goes on, that really only applies if you only have one legislative body. If you have two, it cuts that down. In other words, you can't, you can't really have a lot of factionalism with two houses of representation, two houses of legislation. But even that, he says, won't completely get rid of it. You'll still have some. But by adding two more, a presidential veto and a judicial system, which he implies, and this is one of the first places we see this implication, uh, judicial review from, that will get rid of even more of the factionalism. But even that, he says, won't end it completely until and unless we put all of this idea under one singular government, one federal head, he calls it, wherein a single state, <clears throat> looking at you, Delaware, will not be able to factionalize things and stop things because this whole system is designed to keep the apparatus moving, even in the face of resistance of faction. He says that by putting it under the federal head, all of this will combine to prevent factionalism. It will unite the country behind the goals, which of course are preserving liberty, preventing tyranny. 
And if you read this, you'll come to the conclusion that I did, that all of these are very sound arguments for Republican representative, representative Republicanism and its ideology. In fact, in some ways, I would submit to you that I've made these same arguments through the years. I've made, I could go back to shows and so where we talked about, we're not a democracy, we're a representative republic. But why are we that? Because of these very reasons. By putting it all into a federal government, doing a, splitting the, the legislative issues, giving the presidential power veto, giving the judicial review power, it all creates a system by which factionalism is reduced. Still exists, but it's not able to stop the goal at that point. Keep in mind that I have no doubt that both sides, Federalist and Anti-Federalist, are reaching for the goal. I do not doubt that at all. I doubt it about today's government and today's government in, in leadership in Washington, D.C. I seriously doubt it now. But in 1787, 1788, I think they were all looking for the same thing. They were just looking at methodology for how to do it. Because I think that, I'm able to read both sides, learn from both sides, and judge for myself who was right, who was wrong, what can we take from each side. Which is exactly, by the way, what Cato was asking us to do. Take our time and consider things. This is an anti-federalist position that's repeated many, many times by many of them. Slow down. Just because you have to do something doesn't mean you have to do this attitude. It's a great discussion. And I like what Americanus has to say about how a federal government will do away with factionalism and how Montesquieu's irrefragable axiom is untrue. Can be ignored. The problem is that, as I've said on numerous occasions, I think the biggest difference between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists was their understanding of human nature. The Anti-Federalists have a much better understanding of human nature than the Federalists do. And Americanus, who up to this point in his letter has made a brilliant argument, who has shown that the Cato letter, the anti-federalist position on this Republican size, is wrong, now delves into a direct response to Cato. Cato wrote, you risk much by indispensably placing trusts of the greatest magnitude in the hands of individuals whose ambition for power and aggrandizement will oppress and grind you. You can't say Cato's wrong there. I mean, look at what's going on today. Do you think these people really care about the goal of the country, or do they care about power and self-aggrandizement? I'm going to go with the latter. This statement, however, particularly sticks in the craw of, of Americanus. And he writes... This in response. This argument, this is argument ad populum. I love it when they use Latin, I really do. Argument ad populum is a fallacious argument. So it's, it's a nonsense argument in which 
you appeal to the people. It's that's literally what it means, the appeal to the people. And what it basically says is we are supporting this idea not because it's right, but because most of the people, a majority, agrees with me. Doesn't matter how ridiculous the argument is. How many times have we made this argument about the difference between rule of law and the rule of a democracy and the rule of a of a mob? He argues that that Cato's argument that these people are going to be power mad and going after money and riches and aggrandizement, he argues that that's just a populist argument. It's just, you're just saying that because most people think that. Cato, he says, knows better. He knows that the powers vested by this constitution in the federal government, listen to this, he knows that the powers vested by this constitution in the federal government are, quote, well, it's all a quote, incapable of abuse, unquote. This is an anti, this is a federalist writing that the powers being given by the constitution are incapable of abuse. You ever have that moment where you're, you're really with somebody or you're, you're enjoying what they're saying. They're right there with you. And then all of a sudden they say something that's so crazy off the rack, crazy. That you just kind of cringe and you go, well, can't follow you there, can I? He goes on to describe how the different elements of the government are modified and how they are put in here and how the state legislators are going to control things. And the mutual apprehensions of encroachments that Cato has must forever keep a jealous, awake, watchful spirit, which will not suffer the smallest abuses to pass unnoticed. Americanus is convinced that the people of the United States will be so virtuous that they will never allow these abuses to happen. And that's why he says they're incapable of abuse, because the people will not stand for it. The Senate and the House of Representatives are form mutual checks upon each other, and the president on both of them. Cato's apprehension of monarchy are chimerical, that is, mythic, the mythical beast, the chimera in the highest degree, and calculated in the same manner as to what he says about the rich oppressing and grinding the poor. He's just trying to catch the attention of an unwary multitude. Wait, didn't you just say that this unwary multitude is going to keep an eye on the government to keep it from abusing the powers, and that's how this will happen? But now you say he's just appealing ad populum because you see the problem with the argument, and you see why I say the Federalists they just don't seem to understand human nature. So his argument comes down to, we don't need small republics because we're smarter than the ancients were. We've, we've discovered the hinge upon which Republican government swings, which is representation. And oh, by the way, because we're doing it this way, the people will love and respect their federal government and they will enjoy it. It's not capable of being abused because the people who are apparently being tricked by Cato in class warfare between poor and rich, will be watching the government and they'll make sure that nothing will happen. Keeping in mind that John Stevens was one of the wealthiest men in America and his family, his descendants, who still live in the New Jersey area today, are still amongst some of the wealthiest Americans. It is 
axiomatic that Stevens didn't really understand the people. It's a great idea. It's a great argument. Until he starts explaining why. Because clearly we the people have not been virtuous or engaged. Which means that Republican government has become illiberal. Which means that in essence, Americanus, in his argument, took one irrefragable axiom that republics have to be small and replaced it with another irrefragable axiom that the constitutional powers delegated could not be abused. Start to understand the confusion and why this was such a debate. Irrefragable axioms had a great deal to do with that.